0: For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Joy. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we pause again before you. We have sung our praises to you. We have prayed to you and lifted up our hearts. We have brought our offerings and worship to you we've heard your word read and now Lord we open our hearts as we come to the preaching of your word that somehow in the power of your spirit you use to transform us would you come and do that now with the your word and the powerful moving of your Holy Spirit would we see Jesus Would we be changed? Would you work in us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a question to get us started here, uh, kids and young people. Um, What do you think, so in this passage we're talking about this concept of discipline. What do you think of when you hear that word discipline? What comes to mind? We got a while to be quiet and silent here, so. Anything? Yes, Levi, thank you for helping us all. Isn't silence hard? We're not used to silence. Thank you, Levi. Go ahead. What? Loss. Okay. All right. Fantastic. All right. Discipline, loss. Okay. Like what? What? Okay, like giving up stuff? Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Thank you, Sarah, for trying to help me. I was struggling there. Yes, over here. Yeah, Ames. Yes, there we go. We have an honest person in the room. I like it. That was the answer I was looking for and thinking of. We're talking about spankings, right? You know, when I was a young person, that's definitely what I thought of whenever I heard discipline. I thought of punishment. And the most vivid picture of discipline and punishment I have in my life kind of takes me back to school, actually back to middle school. And we had this principal in middle school, because, you know, usually the principal's the guy who dishes out the discipline and punishment, right? Right. So we had this principal in middle school. His name was Sunny Day. And to be with him was not a sunny day. It was rough. And I've told my kids just this legend of Sunny Day, but he he was a Vietnam veteran. He was big, and I had never seen him smile in my life. And he could just give you this look. And he just walked the hot halls and just kind of ruled with an iron fist. I mean, he was a disciplinarian. And he kind of had this legend around him. I mean, you know, this kids would kind of tell these different stories. Now, this was back in the day where you could actually paddle. I told my kids this story like, you know, way back in my day, you know, you could get paddled at school. And my kids were like, what? Are you kidding? Yes. Like, it happened all the time. You, I remember being in class, and you could hear, whap, whap, and it just sent waves of fear throughout the school, right? But there was this legend about Sunny Day. I mean, he, he had a paddle that many of us had seen, but the legend was he had another paddle, a special paddle that was only broken out for special cases, and it was the legend of the paddle with the holes in it. You know, have, you know of that legend as kids? I'm not, I don't understand the physics around this, but somehow a paddle with holes in it, I don't know if it's more aerodynamic, so you get more speed, like bat speed on it, or if some way the, the dispersion of the holes intensifies pain somehow as it strikes the rear end. I'm not sure of the physics, but it was the thing of legend. And he knew how to paddle, and he had a swing on him. And I can remember one time, I can't remember what I did, but I found myself in the principal's office, and I am nervous as can be, and I'm trying not to show it. And I'm sitting across from him. He's sitting behind his desk, and he had this look. I mean, I was just melting right there. And he pulls out his drawer, gets his paddle out, and starts twisting it like that right there. He says, so Mr. Garmony, let's talk. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. You know, for, I think most of us, when we think of discipline, we think of fear and intimidation. We think of punishment. That's certainly what I thought of growing up. We don't think very often of love. I certainly didn't think that growing up. I didn't think that with Sonny Day. Maybe he loved us. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he cared about what we became. I certainly didn't think of it with my parents. Anytime my parents dis- uh, disciplined me, I did not think, oh, Thank you for being so committed to me and loving me. I didn't think that at all. I thought, why don't you love me? If you love me, you wouldn't do this to me. But every good parent knows that if you love your child, you discipline them. And I can say as a parent, having become a parent, there is nothing harder about being a parent. Is that right? When you have to discipline your child, when you have to bring pain or difficulty into their life as a correction. It's the hardest thing in the world. It it is the most taxing thing. It is the most uh, confusing thing because you don't ever know if you're doing it right. It is the hardest thing in the world. Well, we find ourselves in a culture that whenever it comes to discipline, things like discipline and authority in the eyes of our culture and society right now are bad things. And they're actually the opposite of love. You know, as our culture uh, looks at love and is constantly sending us these messages about what love looks like, love is something that looks like tolerance. Love is something that looks like me not uh, telling you the truth, me not putting any boundaries on you, me not in any way limiting whatever you want to do in your life. Love looks like just letting people do whatever they want to do. It's actually also our culture's view of freedom. Which, biblically speaking, is not called freedom, it's called bondage. Because you're in slavery to yourself. But our culture has this view of love that it means, I don't impose on you, and authority is kind of a, it's a bad thing in our culture, and our our culture is reacting to evil uses of authority in the past. Our culture right now is in this moment where we're just uh, reacting to oppression, because that's been real in our history. But our culture doesn't know how to hold truth in tension so our culture is going to always be running to one extreme or the other right we're either running to authority and oppression or running through to anarchy and running to tolerance and love is doing whatever you want to do but as we come to our passage we're going to see a different kind of view of discipline we're going to actually see how committed To us, God is in discipline in our life. So we're going to see God's discipline. We're going to see what his goal is in bringing discipline into our life. And finally, we're going to see how we're called to respond to the discipline that God brings in our life. So as we're jumping into our passage here, again, we're making our way through the book of Hebrews. And we're starting in verse 4. And before we jump in here, I want to encourage you to do something. I think this will help us to really apply this passage to our heart. I want you to think of some hard reality in your life right now. I want you to think of some difficulty in your life, some trouble that you're walking through in your life, something that is causing pain in your life right now, something that is causing confusion. Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's an unmet desire. Maybe you're deeply longing for something in your life that God has not brought into your life and you're very confused by that. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a sickness in your life. Maybe it's Whatever. Maybe it's a struggle that just continues to persist in your life and you're like, God, where are you in this? I want you to take something in your life. Something right now, a real reality, because I'm just going to assume we all have that. I'm going to assume that we all have pain and hardship and difficulty in some area of our life. I want you to take something. If you're taking notes, just write it down. If you're not taking notes, put it in your mind and keep that in your mind as we walk through the passage. Because this passage is intended to change our perspective on the hardships and the sufferings and the difficulties we walk through in this life. The goal is to change our understanding upon what God is up to in the hard and painful things of our life. So you got it? Got it in your mind? Let's jump into the passage. So in this passage, the context that he is using here Uh, is basically the suffering and the persecution that the Hebrews have been walking through. And in verse 7, he says this, look at verse 7, he says, Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. So the reality is, is that God brings hardship into our life. That is an assumption of this passage. It's actually an assumption of the whole Bible, that God brings hard things into our life. God brings suffering into our life. Very painful things into our life. And you just need to understand that from the get-go. Because it's very easy to miss that, especially in our culture. Because our culture has a real hard time with suffering, because our culture in every way wants to run from suffering and cannot see the purpose and value of suffering, because of that, that bleeds into our American Christianity, and very easily we begin to think that if God really loves me, he's going to make my life work out. That if I'm really, like, uh, loved by God, if I'm doing everything right, you know, if I'm uh, being faithful to him in my life, then he's going to make everything go well and smooth in my life. That if God really loves me, then my life is going to be happy and healthy and smooth. Now, we probably wouldn't say, yeah, I believe that. But let me tell you, it creeps into our Christianity at every turn. You know, I talk all the time about hashtag blessed. You know, it's that, you know, on Facebook. Somebody's going through and they're listing all the amazing things about their life. And they're saying, hashtag blessed. Like, here's obviously God favors me because everything's going well in my life. But that is not the way that God blesses us. And so when that is our mindset, very often we think that whenever hardship does come into our life, whenever suffering does come into our life, we think, God, you have, you, you've betrayed me. You're not holding up your end of the bargain. You don't love me. You've forgotten me. It's so easy in the face of hardship in our life to think that. Think, like, where are you, God? Or even on the other end to think that we've done something wrong. That whenever we're facing hardship or brokenness in our life, to think, this is because I've messed something up. Because if I were getting it right, then my life would be going well. Now let me just say here, sometimes the hardship and suffering and consequences that we face are because of something that we've done. It could be a result of our sin, where God is allowing us to experience consequences in our lives. Sometimes that is the case, but not always. So often God brings hardship into our life it's from his hand it is not an accident and that is the heart of what he's teaching in this passage so for them for the hebrews here it is the persecution that they're facing in their life we see right in verse he says in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The struggle against sin that he's talking about there is not their personal struggle against their own sin. The struggle he's talking about there is their struggle against sinners in their life who are persecuting them because of their faith in Jesus. We know that because of the context of very Uh, verse before that in verse 3 where he says consider him talking about jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart he's pointing them to jesus saying i know the situation you're in i know you're in you're enduring tremendous persecution you are losing property you are being excluded from the community you are losing your jobs i know and i see what's happening Think about Jesus. He's walked this before you. So their circumstance that they're facing, their hardship, is incredible persecution. And the point that he's making here is that this is from God. It's the discipline that he's brought into your life. And he quotes uh, from the book of Proverbs here. If you look in... uh, Second part of verse five and verse six, where he says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So he's telling him those things that are in your life. He's telling us all the the things that we're walking through in our life, whatever those hard and painful things are, that they're the discipline from the Lord, not punishment. Punishment and discipline are two very different things. For those of us who are in Christ, our punishment has fallen on Christ. We don't get punished for our sin. Jesus was punished for our sin. But God, in his love, in his fatherly love for us, brings hardship to bring about discipline in order that we might be changed. He uses the illustration here of a father or a good parent. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 7. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, then you are uh, not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So the reality there that he's saying here is that whenever you experience hardship in your life, whenever you're experiencing discipline, it's not a sign that God doesn't love you, it's actually a sign that he does. Because only an unloving parent would neglect discipline in the life of their child. But as every parent knows, because I love my child, Because I am deeply committed to what they become, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to bring hard things into their life. Because I know that through the hardship, they're changed and formed through the difficulty that we bring into their life. It's going to to form their character. It's going to open their eyes. So it's actually a sign of God's love in our life. And this is how God grows us. So, here's the question. What is God's ultimate goal in the hardship and discipline that he brings into our life? What is God up to and after in our life? Now, look at verse 11, where he says this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. That's the reality. The hard things that God brings into our life are not pleasant. They are hard. They are difficult They are bitter. Some of us are walking through incredibly painful things that we don't understand. Some of us are enduring unmet desires in our life that we have been longing for and praying for for so long. And we're like, God, where are you? Do you see me? It is incredibly painful. But here's what he says. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Now, the word here for trained is a Greek word called gymnazo. It's actually the root that we get gymnasium. So he's using, he's staying with that sports metaphor. You remember last week we talked about this race that he talks about the Christian life as a race. It's actually using that kind of metaphor and imagery throughout the entire passage. And so the discipline that God brings into our life is like his gym. You know, if you've ever been to the gym, what happens in a gym? Pain right? That's why you're there. You're undergoing pain. You're working out. You know, I've shared, you know, doing CrossFit, the goal of CrossFit is pain and suffering. In fact, we call it the fellowship of shared suffering. It's the entire goal. It's like the joke. You walk in and you're like, what is the pain going to be today? So why would we do that? Why would you go to the gym? Why would you work out? Why would you bring hardship into your life? And it's obvious, right? Because we know what it produces. We know that through the pain that we endure, it's going to bring health into my life. It's going to bring strength into my life. Unless I'm broken down, I'm never going to grow. Unless my muscles are challenged and brought to a place of fatigue, they're never going to grow and expand. He's using that metaphor to say suffering and hardship. And difficult circumstances. And unmet desires. All of these things are God's gem. It's how he grows us. And he is committed not to the pain that's happening now. But to that future harvest that's coming. That's God's commitment. That's his ultimate goal. Because he knows that later on through the things that we're walking through. As incredibly painful as they are. God is going to bring a harvest in our life. That's what pain does. Have you experienced this in your life? You know, I have not grown spiritually in the easy times of my life. I've not grown in those times where, like, everything's just going smoothly. Oh, I wish it were that way. When have you grown most? Is it not the times where you have walked through things that have brought you to the end of yourself? Times where you have been in such a furnace that all the impurity of your heart has just come up to the surface. You know, that's a part of what what hardship does in our life. It just brings the worst of you out. Now, what's happening there? All that was in there, it didn't cause it. It's bringing it out so that it can be exposed and transformed. Suffering in our life is God's loving way of transforming our hearts. Look at what he says in verse 9. The ultimate goal is here of what God is after in our lives. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Sometimes, right? In our best moments when, when our parents disciplined us, we respected them. Because we knew, you know better. And you're bringing something good in my life. But he's making a comparison here. We have a father who is perfect you know, his earthly parents, we're imperfect. We're going to get it wrong. We're, we're, going to, we're going to discipline in anger. We're going to discipline out of control. We're going to mess up. I mess up all the time. But here's the beautiful thing. The father of our spirits, our father in heaven, is a perfect father. And look at what he says here. Um, Verse 10, they discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. That's God's ultimate goal. He wants us to share in his holiness. You see his heart there? You know, that might not deeply move you, maybe because of our view of holiness. How many of us hear that word holiness and say, oh, I want that? If we're honest, holiness kind of sounds like going to the dentist, right? It's like, yeah, I know it's good for me, but it ain't no fun and I don't really want to do it. You know, our view of holiness is far too shallow and it's far too external. I think as we think about that word holiness, we think that essentially means eradicating all fun from our life. Right? We don't equate holiness with happiness. But that's because we don't understand holiness at all. Holiness is becoming what we most deeply long to be. In our truest and deepest desires. Holiness is becoming like God. Becoming a person who is deeply rooted in His love. Becoming a person who... Is not centered on yourself, but loves others deeply and well. Someone who is whole, holiness is whole. It's not being divided, it's not being controlled by the, the empty things of this life, but it's rather being driven by love and all of your relationships. You see, God's heart for us is that we would come to share in His very nature. He wants us to be like Him. He wants us to be like Jesus. Do you know this is actually the goal of all that Jesus came to do? The goal of everything. The goal of him becoming one of us and living this perfect life in our place. And dying on the cross to take our sin and our punishment. He did not do all of that just so that we wouldn't go to hell. He did all of that so that we would be made holy. So that we would be made like him. You see, holiness is something that He has accomplished for us. And by His Spirit, He is now working out in our lives. Holiness is not something that we achieve. It's not something we muster up. It's not something you work towards. Holiness is something that God does in us. It's something that He creates through the power of the cross. Through the work of Jesus and our union with Him. It's something that He brings forth. It's glory. You know, we spend so much of our energy chasing the glory of this world. You know, chasing the opinions of other people. Changing, uh, chasing accomplishments and all these different kind of things. We, we want glory. This is what we were made for. But none of those things can give it. But you see, God, he wants to glorify us. He wants to give us real significance and weight. A weight that comes from deeply knowing him. That's holiness. That is what God is up to in our lives. No matter what you're facing in your life, that's his goal. Doesn't it change our circumstances? So here's the question. Does discipline just automatically do that? Does does hardship in your life just automatically make you holy? And the answer is no. It doesn't at all. In fact, hardship and discipline in our life can actually harden you. It can actually make you bitter. In fact, maybe there's some of us today that through the things that we've endured and faced in our life, we've not become more soft and humble and holy, but maybe we've become hardened. It's very easy to respond in that way. So the question is, how are we to respond to God's loving discipline in our life in order that we might truly be transformed? Transformed. And the answer is found in verse 9. Look again at verse 9 with me where he says this. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. And then here he says, next sentence, how much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? How are we transformed in the face of discipline and hardship when we submit ourselves to the father? Now, submission is not a popular word In our culture. It goes right along with authority and discipline. Right? We don't like submission. Because it sounds like oppression. And it sounds like giving up. It sounds like surrender. It's exactly what it is. And let's be honest. We don't like to surrender. We don't like to give up control. Because we know that whenever we surrender control. We're vulnerable. And that's a scary place to be. So we spend so much of our energy and so much of our lives hardening ourselves, protecting ourselves, building walls. That's why it's so hard to submit. That's why it's so scary to release control. You see what he's saying here? The way that we're transformed is in the face of God's loving discipline in your life. You surrender. You submit. You say, God, I don't know what you're up to. I don't understand this in my life. But I know you're good. So I surrender myself to you. What do you you want? So I surrender my life to you. I surrender my future to you. I surrender my relationships to you. I surrender my money to you. I surrender my whole life to you. Submission is the essence of our response to God. It's an act of worship. And it is how we are transformed. Let me give you an illustration here. A number of years ago, uh, I was on staff with a campus ministry, uh, actually at University of Georgia. And after my first year on staff with this campus ministry, I had an opportunity to lead a team of college students to Russia, to the middle of nowhere in Russia, for an entire summer for a mission trip. And we were going to a place where very few people had ever met an American at all. And it was a very exciting trip, and you know, I, I was just out of college myself and, and I have these college students and I remember we're getting ready to go and we're at the airport and these parents, I can't even imagine this now, these parents were insane, but these parents gave their kids to me. I was a kid myself and I remember one parent looking at me in the eye and she said, you better bring my daughter home. And I was just like, oh my gosh, like the weight of it just hit me. You know, it went from an adventure to like an incredible burden. I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm up to this. So I began to be very anxious, like, oh, all this thing is up to me, which is kind of my MO and how I operate. So here we go. We're getting ready to go. I'm walking through the airport with this, and I'm, I'm counting people every five minutes and all this stuff. And we get on a plane in Atlanta, and we land in New York. And then from New York, we were going to fly to Moscow, Russia. And so we're getting ready to board the plane, and one of the girls on my team says, oh my gosh, I've lost my passport. And in her passport was a Russian visa. And I'm like, oh! But despite all of my efforts to control everything about this trip, right at the very beginning, it's all falling apart. So I, we, we, it was like a moment of crisis. I'm like, what do I do? So what I decided to do was send the team ahead, send all the rest of the team ahead, and I stayed back with her. And with four days in New York, we tried to get a new passport and visa, which if you've ever done that before, you know it takes about four months to do that. And so we're going all over the place, passport office, Russian consulate. We're going back and forth and every door in the world was slamming in our face. I was praying harder than I'd ever prayed. I was believing. I was naming it and claiming it. I was like, God's going to do this. I'm believing. I'm believing. And door after door was shutting in our face. Everybody was saying, it can't happen. It's impossible. She's not going. And I had one of the biggest crises of faith I've ever had. I didn't know how to understand it. I was like, God, I'm trying so hard. And you're not doing anything. You're not helping me. You're not showing up. Where are you? Are you even there? Have you ever been there in your life? I hope you have. Because you've got to go through that to have a mature faith. You've you got to stare doubt right in the, faith, in the face if you ever want to know a true and mature faith. And I was there. I felt like I was losing my faith. I'm like, what? I, I, how do I go and lead this trip? I don't even know if I believe in God. I was struggling that deeply. Somehow, miraculously, God brought it all in. Passport, visa, but guess what? I didn't see that. I thought it was me that made it happen. Because I had Russians in headlocks in the consulate. So we get over to Russia. We have a summer that was so hard and so difficult. And I was so stripped down over and over and over. Now, we we saw God move and do incredible things. But it was such... A difficult summer of struggle. And I remember getting home after that trip. Finally, I walk into my room at home. I drop my bags. I sit on the bed. And I was like, what just happened? And I opened my Bible to this passage. And I read this this passage where it says, God disciplines us because he loves us. And where it said, God disciplines us that we may share in his holiness. The truth of this hit my heart like an ocean, like a tsunami. My heart got so in touch with like, oh, God, you did all of this for me. You led me through all of this pain because you love me and you want me to be like you. And I wept for 30 minutes straight. It was one of those moments in my life where I was so in touch with the heart of God that I was literally overwhelmed by his love. That he would be so committed to me and me becoming what he had created me to be. It was unbelievable. You know what my response was in that moment? I said, God, I want you to have my whole life. I want you to take everything. I'll go wherever you want to go. I want my whole future's in your hands. You can take my life You can have everything. Have you ever responded in that way to God? Have you ever been in that place of just utter surrender? Where you say, I want you to have it all. Do whatever you want with my life. It is a place of incredible freedom. But you know how I got there? The only way to get there is to see his heart of love for you. Apart from that, you can't. Unless you come to see his heart of love for you, you can't surrender. You cannot surrender to someone you do not trust. You cannot surrender to someone that you do not know deeply is committed to you and your good and your flourishing. But when you see that, you can surrender. And surrender is the heart of obedience. Surrender is the heart of worship. So here's the question I'll leave with you. And we'll have a few moments to discuss. That area I ask you to identify in your life. That place of pain and confusion and difficulty in your life. What would it look like to surrender that to God? What would it look like to just release that area to God? And what would it look like to look at that circumstance differently? Like in light of the truth of what our passage is showing. That like, well maybe this is not because God has abandoned me and hates me, or is not present in my life. Maybe this very thing is the very symbol and picture of His committed love for me. What would it look like to reinterpret the circumstances of your life? So let's take a few moments to just interact over that interact over the passage if you're new here we do this each week at the end of the service we just take a little time to discuss the passage together and what it's doing in us so how does that move you the passage how does it challenge you how does it disturb you it's a little disturbing
2: i'll I'll do my annual um response (laughs) i do this about once a year but um I think one thing as you're sharing is I realized that since I became a Christian, which was about a year before we went to Russia, I was a 17 year old at the beginning of that trip. Um, but I was Ashley, not the one. Actually, was York on City.
1: that mission trip. <laughs> That's how this all happened yes. right here.
2: But I was not alone with Hutch in New York City. It was one of our friends. Very, no. it
1: it was very and naughty. Very yes, but
2: I did, as a 17 year old, get off the plane in Russia. I was the first one. Everyone else was behind me. I'm like, why did they send me? And if you've ever, most of you probably haven't been to the Moscow airport, but you get there and there are Russians and I was, and you can't go backwards. And I was scared to death. Yes. That two minutes of alone probably felt like three hours. But anyway, um, but we're, we're here. Yeah. 20 years later. Um, but what I, what I was going to say is, so I became a Christian about, about nine months before that trip. Really started walking with the Lord. And I think for the next, gosh, 10, maybe 15 years, maybe until this year. I think God's done so much in our lives this year, but um, I really thought that I'd heard brokenness, like we're broken since the very beginning, like we are broken, sinful people, um, but the Lord loves us, and He's committed to us, but I thought what that meant was that Christianity was a total self-improvement project. I Mm. think I spent at least the first decade and a half of becoming a Christian, just in all my self-improvement projects. Um, not submitting to the Lord, really just in independence, trying to get better. I mean, I think it was just like 10 ways to be a better mom, or 10 ways to read your Bible more. Just, just tons of self-improvement projects. And um, slowly, as the Lord has drawn me near and near to His heart, as I've seen that I fully can trust His heart of love towards me, I think I've seen that growing um, really looks a lot more messy a lot more raw. You feel a lot more weak, a lot more like, I don't know what's going on, but much nearer to the heart of God. Yeah. Um, I feel like submission looks like trust and like um, like crawling a lot more than running. Like I was trying to do in my self-improvement projects, I was trying to be great at everything. And um, it's just, it's a, it feels like it's a lot harder but it's a lot better. Um, yeah. So it's like you have to live a lot more alive. Like you're feeling all that pain at the gym, but the the enjoyment of after the workout is some, is is very good too. I'm probably using your um, example wrong, but anyway, I think just moving from Christianity being self-improvement, improving, getting better, <clears throat> to actually becoming more reek, becoming more raw, really being like coming as a child to your father and Mm. trusting his heart. Um, It's been really glorious in the fact that I think it's opened my heart to love people more than I ever have. Mm. Um, And real love, not trying to love them to be a good Christian, but really seeing and loving people. So, Yeah. yeah, my annual response.
1: Ashley, thank you. And I think that is really profound, what she's saying, that it's so easy for us to think Christianity is a self improvement project. And honestly, I think we would prefer it to be so. Because if I'm about self improvement, I'm getting better in my own strength and I don't have to get broken to do that. And what I see most believers and what I've seen in my life, I've struggled with this all of my Christian life. I'm still struggling with it. But I prefer to do that way. I prefer to do Christianity that way than in the midst of hard things and brokenness submitting my heart to the Father. Like, I, As I look and interact with most of us and with myself, I see most of us are just trying to avoid that at all costs. We're trying to avoid brokenness. We're trying to look like we got it together. To each other and to God. And we're trying so hard. We're on lockdown with our pain. Right? And what we don't understand is that our pain is the doorway to transformation. But we're on lockdown. Right? Because if I let my pain out. If I face my brokenness. I'm out of control. We're terrified of being out of control. But what I think we got to understand is that is the way to freedom. It's the way to the heart of the Father. Is letting go and surrendering to His love it takes a lot of courage to do that, but it's so worth it. I might have got a little too personal there. Okay, Sarah's going to talk.
0: I think that I can I understand like okay you have to surrender and come to that place but I feel like I try to do that sometimes but it's not real and I I can convince myself sometimes that it is and I really think that it is but then it's not still yeah so can you tell me how to do that Yes now
1: I really appreciate that cuz I think it it helps with the clarification um I'm the kind of person who can turn anything into a work. It's very easy to turn surrender into a work. When, when surrender is actually giving up work, it's giving up self-improvement. Surrender is like crying uncle. You know, when your uncle or big brother's twisting your arm and you're in pain and you're like, I'm not, I'm not giving up, I'm not, uncle! You know, it's the moment of surrender. I'm just letting go. And that's not a work. And to get there to that, because it's not something I can do, especially, I, I cannot do it when my heart does not feel safe and loved by God. You just can't do it. So you, you cannot surrender apart from deeply knowing God's love and care for you. You cannot do it apart from knowing his heart. So really, we got to pursue that. And the more deeply we, we feel secure and loved by him. Because that's the gospel, you know? The gospel is, I mean, we could not be more loved. We could not be more secure. I mean, he is given his precious son for you. Like, so that's done. So we just, we've got to know that in our heart. We know it here, we've got to know it in our heart. But the more deeply we become convinced of his heart. And his love, it frees you to surrender. Because you're, you're surrendering to the one who loves you more than you can imagine. Does that make sense? So, sometimes I'll try to do surrender apart from knowing his love. And it's just a work. It's just something I'm supposed to do. But surrender flows when I know his heart for me. I feel like you were saying um, when I do get in
2: touch with God's love and God's heart for me, like you, know, you can't but surrender in that moment, yeah. And you want to because it's beautiful. And you can see that He really does love you. And
1: a couple of days later, you take it back. I take yeah, it back, right? At least, and it seems it's so often. Like I see, oh my gosh, you God, you love me so much, and I want this. I want to give you my future. I want to give you my life. And two days later, <laughs> I take it back with my own strength. Yes. I want to tr- trust in my own strength. And I don't know, that it happens all the time. That's <clears throat> really glad you said that, Eduardo. And I think most of us can relate to that. So surrender, which is really another word for repentance. But it's not a thing you do and now I'm good. It's continual and ever deepening. In fact, that is the Christian life. The Christian life is continual surrender To the love and grace of god in our life so we got to get in this mindset of like yeah i got to surrender now and then i got to surrender in an hour and then i got to surrender again but the problem is we i think whenever we see ourselves taking it back in guilt and shame we run rather than continuing to come and surrender ourselves to the love of the father but, but that is that we've got to see the Christian life is continual surrender. You don't arrive. I wish you kind of got to this point where you're like, okay, good, I'm a surrendered person, I'm good to go. We're not going to get there till we meet Jesus face to face. But until that point, it's like constant surrender. And that is the Christian life. Continual, daily surrender to the love and grace of the Father. Well, Let me close this in prayer and we'll... Close it with worship. Father we. I want to thank you. It almost sounds scary to even utter. But I want to thank you for the pain in my life. I want to thank you. That behind everything. That you have brought into my life. Is your enormous love. For me. For my family. My domain. In each of our lives. It's your love. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the magnitude of your love and grace to us in Jesus, and that we would be so convinced of your heart, so convinced of your goodness, so convinced of your love in the hard things in our life, that we would surrender everything in us to you. Make us a people, a deep surrender. In Christ's name we pray, amen.